Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, we're glad to have you with us yet again here uh, at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, just a stone's throw away from Colt Manufacturing, maker of fan fine handguns. <laughs> anyway, you've heard me say that before if you're a long-term listener. But uh, today uh, we are... Uh, uh, really pleased to let you know that, uh, as we've said before, we've got a number of uh, listeners to the podcast now, uh, upwards to 2,000 folks as far as we can tell, and uh, some of the folks who have been listening to the show have, uh, on their own initiative, uh, given us money. It's just astounding, but uh, we're, we're grateful for that, and we say thank you. And I would, I would actually name the folks uh, if... Uh, if I thought that that was appropriate. I have not gotten their permission to name them, so I don't think it is. But uh, if you would like to, to join these folks and support the podcast, it would be appreciated. There are some expenses with the show. We don't take salaries or anything like that. Uh, but uh, there are technical expenses, uh, just the broadcast itself in terms of its presence on the Internet costs us something. But there are also, uh, you know, production costs, and uh, then there are some things that we're hoping to do in the future that, that it would be great to have supporters help us with. And we've talked about some of those things before. One of those things is a kind of virtual classroom we've talked about establishing. But uh, the way you can uh, support us is by becoming a member of the Fight, Laugh, Laugh Feast Club and using the, uh, the, the code PUGCAST when you sign up. Now, there will be a, uh, a, uh, a link in the, the notes for the show that you can follow, but if you were to go online and just type in flfnetwork.com uh, forward slash membership, that would take you to where you need to go. So, enough of that. And uh, we've got a special. We've got a guest with us this uh, guest with us this week, and he's a special guest because he's. We're all special. We've been told that again and again by motivational speakers and kindergarten teachers since since time out of mind. Public schools. <laughs> that's right, that's right. But uh, but we have a special we have a special guest, and he'll introduce himself in a minute. But uh, why don't we start with you, Glenn, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at, at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, along with a few other odds and ends. All right, great, great. My name is Ray Penoyer, and I am a uh, adjunct professor at Albertus Magnus and Sacred Heart University, and also a um, one of the pastors at Walnut Hill Community Church in Connecticut. So, what are the subjects you teach, by the way, Ray? I'm in the. I teach uh, introductory religion, uh, world religions, uh, introductory Western philosophy. I teach uh, New Testament, and uh, you know th those are the primary courses that I teach. Well, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for coming. And the reason we're, uh, that Ray is with us is that is that uh, Tom Price, Dr. Price, is on the road. He's on vacation and uh, visiting uh, family. He's uh, going through Pennsylvania. He's telling us the other day that he was in my old stomping grounds in Western PA, in Pennsylvania, as they call it. And he said that there was a lot of stuff on the radio that reminded him of his home in Virginia. But uh, anyways, uh, he went from there to Virginia, and I think that's where he is now. And then he'll be going up to the Berkshires, which is a very tony part of Massachusetts where wealthy Bostonians go in the summertime 
to listen at, uh, to the Boston Pops and the Symphony at Tanglewood. It's also uh, where you can uh, uh, tour a Shaker Village, the Pittsfield uh, Shaker Village, which is a very interesting place to go with the Round Barn. I wrote about it for Touchstone mm -hmm. years ago. Maybe that'd be a good theme for a show. Who were the Shakers and why were they sort of weird but also endearing in certain ways? And, and uh, it's uh, also the place where you can visit the Norman Rockwell Museum because that's where Norman Rockwell lived and you can visit his studio and actually see the works that you know made it onto the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Anyway, as I noted before, my name is uh, C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. Well, uh, those who uh, have listened to us before know that we kind of take a, uh, a turn uh, each week uh, with the subject of the day, and today is my day. My day, and I'd like to talk about principalities and powers. Now, when I say that, principalities and powers, uh, what ought to come to mind is Ephesians, when we think about what the Apostle Paul said about uh, battling principalities and powers. And he, he said uh, that even though Christ has won a great victory, a decisive victory, and has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, uh, and has, has uh, therefore brought into subjection all things, nevertheless, there's, there's a kind of ongoing conflict that uh, we are to engage in. And uh, we are given a suit of armor. Again, you get to the end of Ephesians and you have that suit of armor laid out and described. Now in my book, uh, Household War for the Cosmos, I was intrigued by the parallels between the Aeneid, where we have Aeneas, and his uh, quest to establish uh, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom that would eventually develop into the Roman Empire. Uh, alongside uh, Abram and the eventual development of, you know, the, the people of God or sort of the journey of the people of God to claim their inheritance or receive their inheritance through Christ uh, being all things and, and how there, you know, are, you know, things that these two stories have in common. There's a child of promise, for example. There's a promised land. That's another example. There's also an ongoing conflict that has to be waged in order to to, to see the, the vision of the, of the founder, and in each case the vision of the founder is, is, is uh, given the vision as a, as a gift. And, you know, in one case with, with Aeneas from the gods, you know, the Roman gods, you know, that pantheon, but with, of course with Abram, with the one true God, and how that eventually leads to a conflict between those houses, the house of Aeneas and the house of Abram, and how Abram's house through Christ uh, is victorious. But there's this suit of armor that Aeneas receives to fight his battle against Turnus in the story of the Aeneid. And that, that suit of armor uh, includes a shield. And on that shield is depicted and blazoned uh, the future history, which is an interesting concept, the future history of the Roman people. So all the conquests of his descendants are on his shield and he's representing them and beginning the, the series of conquests that they will in, 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 uh, wage in years to come. Now, we as Christians have a, uh, a victory that's been won by Christ, uh, but at the same time, there's something for us to do. We're given a suit of armor as well, and we're told to go out and fight. Uh, but our battle is not with Romans, really, right? You know, it's with principalities and powers. 
and uh, consequently it's not flesh and blood that we're primarily concerned with, although there is a ki kind of concern that is there in a secondary way. It's the, 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 the thing that we need to be aware of is this, uh, uh, this fight that we're, we're, in, we're engaged with, with these uh, forces that actually are uh, manifested or expressed through the kingdoms of this world. And what we have at the Romans is, of course, the most powerful kingdom of the day. Anyway, put that to one side, and let me just shift a little bit and bring up another, another matter. A number of times we have, uh, in the course of this podcast, noted that the Reformed, and we are Reformed here, really don't know, at least many of us, don't know what to do with angels. We're not really sure what they're good for. You know? <laughs> what are these guys up to anyway? I mean, why, why, why do we need to be worried about them? We have, you know, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, what do we need angels for? They're messengers. Yeah, maybe Abram needed a messenger. You know, but uh, maybe Jacob needed a messenger. But what do I need a messenger for? I have the Holy Spirit in my heart, right? And so we kind of zone out. We kind of define them out of existence, or at least practically so. Uh, nevertheless. Uh, in Christian theology, the demonic demons are fallen angels. So at least insofar as fallen angels continue to make a difference, we need to think about at least those guys. And uh, then the question is, is well, what is their status? You know, how do we think about them? Uh, are they uh, at work uh, in the same way that, that they were before the victory that Christ won, then if that's the case, then what did Christ win for us, at least at a practical level in the moment? Um, if, they're, if they're not, are they completely out of the picture? Or do we don't need to, uh, is demon possession a thing of the past? Is demonic influence in the world a thing of the past? Do we, do we need to concern ourselves with these things at all? So as I've thought about it, I've thought, well, you know, essentially, you've got three possible positions. Uh, this is, uh, of course, assuming that the Christian worldview is correct and there is not another category of being out there besides God, angels, and us, you know, another kind of intelligence out there. You know, if we were to look at a pagan sort of system of, of, of thinking or, or sort of a cosmology, we, we might see that they're not thinking about, you know, the, the principalities and powers that they're dealing with as angelic powers. They're thinking about them as something else. But within a Christian framework, the first possibility, uh, well, let me say it broader than that, within a Western framework, because the first possibility is not, I think, compatible with Christianity, but the first possibility is the secular idea that our ancestors and, uh, and uh, you know, we're talking about most of the human beings who have ever lived in the, in the history of the world <laughs> uh, believed in these supernatural realities, but they were just plain wrong. Those things uh, didn't exist and never did exist. They were just figments of the imagination or conventions of belief in their particular societies. But now we're beyond all that, and, uh, you know, an educated person just doesn't go there anymore. That's one possibility. That's a possibility that I've rejected, and I think that as a Christian you have to reject. So then we're left with a couple of other possibilities. A second possibility is that it's really 
the same as it's always been and nothing has changed, not even, you know, since the death and resurrection of Christ. Everything is just the, the way it's always been. And the only reason why some people can't see it is because they have a kind of mental procrustean bed. They just, you know, if it doesn't fit into their secular materialist worldview, that particular phenomenon is not thought about or not categorized or not understood or explained or whatever. And so they just don't, they just don't think about those things. But those things exist. They're with us still, and, and demon possession is as common as it ever was. And, and uh, there's always some kind of malevolent or angelic force behind anything that's going on in the world. Um, and then there's a, a third category. And uh, I think that you know, pe people like Athanasius uh, would be you know, an advocate for this, this uh, way of thinking. And that is the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ has uh, finally defeated the uh, principalities and powers that were in rebellion. But there's a kind of mopping up operation that you could say is going on. And the church is involved with that mopping up operation. Sort of like at the end of the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, it's not as though when Robert E. Lee and his men laid down their arms, it's not as though everybody in the Confederacy said, hey, we're done, we're not going to fight anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was Nathan Bedford Forrest, for example, who was a great guerrilla fighter, and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain from the North was sent after him to get him. Uh, and, and that's the kind of scenario that we live in now. So as far as I can see, those are the possibilities. Perhaps. You, you guys. Uh, Another analogy that along that line is that's kind of commonly used is uh, D-Day yes. versus V-Day. Right. The, you right. know, you know, D-Day was the decisive strike against the enemy. Right. Where there was a mopping up. Hey, lives were lost, but right. still, there it was. It was all headed towards V-Day. V-Day was going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I and I've heard that one too, and I think that's a great one. Mm -hmm. But but maybe there's a there's an option I'm missing. But those are the three options that I'm thinking of. And I think it's relevant for us in a number of ways. And I'll explain why, you know, I think so a little later. But I'm, I'm interested in your, your thoughts about my, my, uh, my topology or my categories, uh, whether or not I've, I've covered everything that's possible. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a reasonable, I mean, there, there are a lot of potential nuances and, and variants within those categories, but I think they, they pretty much cover the waterfront in terms right. of what, what the real options yeah. are. Um, what I find interesting, just as a little bit of an aside here, is that among my students at the university, a few years ago, it, option one would have been what they would have landed on. Right. Now, it's a secular university, so we can't really speak exactly in terms of options two and three. But what I'm increasingly seeing among my students is something like option two. Huh. That, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many students I've talked to who have talked about people uh, throwing spells on them, having mm. to go to, you know, some sort of uh, shaman type, whether it's a voodoo priest or whatever, right. to get it lifted. I right. mean, it, it's happened over and over again over the last several now, years. Now, it's interesting that they wouldn't think of going to a church. No. Mm. No, not within these cultures. But maybe, maybe uh, most of our pastors wouldn't know what to do with it if they did. That's right. I think that that's correct. The, the fact is that, that the church in general tends 
this is something Schaefer talked about. We were always way behind the cultural trends. <laughs> and we think we're up to date and all that sort of thing, but we're really not. And I think... Hey, this is funny. I know that social justice is passe because all the evangelicals are getting on the bandwagon. It's done. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> well, but in, in, in this particular case, I think, though, that what's happening is we've st we're, we're still stuck in a 1950s paradigm in terms of metaphysics. Yes, I agree. Where we're still in a, um, in a essentially materialistic world plus God. Yes, that's right. I, I, I was interviewed by First Things not too long ago, and the way I put it was we live in Carl Sagan's cosmos, but we have a personal relationship with Jesus in our hearts. Right. I think that's, <laughs> that's a typical evangelical, at least the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. But you're, what I'm hearing you say is that younger people, maybe even millennials are beyond this, but we're talking about even younger. Right. I don't know what the new one is or whatever, but maybe they're re rediscovering the, the world that our ancestors knew. Yeah, I, I've had uh, I've had some very very confused students asking me questions about ghosts and demons yes. and, and things like that. Right. When I when I teach uh, in world religions, when I teach on animism and um, um, primal religions, yeah, I use that kind of at the end of that section. I say, okay, is any of this real? Okay, is, this, is any of this real? And I kind of do a little chart. You know, you you take this you know experience phenomena. And then you subtract out all sorts of, you know, things that, that are you know, just natural things, things that are uh, scientifically explainable, things that are coincidences, and things that are, things that are um, uh, the work of charlatans. Yes. There still is a remainder of, of extraordinary supernatural events that I would say that, yes, they're real. And, and I don't usually do this, but I'll, I can, you know, turn to, like, Deuteronomy 18. I think it's very very instructive that uh, the God of Israel prohibits all sorts of sorcery and, and, and he, there's a whole long list mm -hmm. that is prohibited for for God's people Israel mm -hmm. and uh, and and essentially it's not for you it doesn't say it's all because it's all bogus yeah that's a very it doesn't good point. say that right right it says this is you know you know the God who created the universe and so this is not for you this is these are the kind of things that though the people you know practiced who who are you know being removed out of the land yeah, so think about the witch of Endor right you know okay so exactly. here we have Saul yes. he wants to have a little conversation with Samuel and it's inconvenient that Samuel's dead <laughs> But, but there's the witch who's going to say, well, I can help you under, uh, get access to him. And we're not told in Scripture that this is bogus, mm -hmm. that this was uh, illusory. No, this is a sin precisely because it's what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she had power. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're, we're stuck in a, as you say, materialistic universe, a Carl Sagan cosmos with, with Jesus in our hearts. But... I think that's true, perhaps, of a lot of evangelicals. It's go, if we go more with the, the sort of Reformed thing, I'm, what, what I've been struck by is what I call Reformed minimalism. Yes. Which, which is this idea that, you know, we, we have a very, you know, the Reformed world, one of the great benefits of it, I'm trying to find the right word, I'm mm -hmm. not sure that's it, but one, one, of the, one of the characteristics of it is that it is a very rational world. It is yeah. a very rational approach to theology. Okay. I'm a specialist. My, my doctoral work was in 16th century France, and there's a historian named Denis Creuset 
uh, who argues that the reason why the French Protestants went Calvinist was it provided them with a rational approach to religion that popular Catholicism didn't have. Popular Catholicism mm -hmm. in France was shot through with superstition. superstition it's, right. it's, it's weekly world news religion yeah, right. in a lot of ways. Right, right. Um, and, and Calvinism provided them an out, an escape from what he called prophetic anguish. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so you, you've got this highly rationalistic theology. We've got, you know, that's the thing that they're really good at. But the problem is, not everything fits into the easy categories. Right. Um, you know, yes, there's only there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we get direct access to God. We can go to God. We don't need anybody in between us, um, so and so on. And so we assume that because we have direct access to God, because we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that there is nothing between us and God. Right. So we've got our own sort of Procrustean bed. Right. There's the secularist Procrustean bed, and there is the Reformed Procrustean bed. Right. And so, <laughs> so there's no real... Angels seem sort of unnecessary. Right. And because they're unnecessary, we tend to not know what to do with them because right. they don't fit with how our theology thinks. Right. Now, it seems as though that the, in the early church they had a different problem. There was a tendency to sort of overvalue angels, you know. So when we think about Hebrews or Colossians and other places in in Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul, you know, warning people not to get wrapped up in you know worshiping angels, in devotion to angels, and so forth. Yes. Right, right. So their problem was almost the opposite. They they were so conscious of their reality that they were tempted, and that's what you see all the time in scripture, right? As soon as an angel shows up, everybody hits their knees and starts to worship, and they're like, no, no, don't do that. Either that or they're freaked out and they have to be, you know, calmed down. Don't fear. C.S. <laughs> Lewis says that whenever an angel appears in scripture, the first words it has to say is fear not. That's right. So right. if you look at the, the kind of angels that are normally depicted in artwork, it looks right. like they should say they're there. That's right. right. They're either they're there or like, uh, please take care of me, give me a hug, you know, because like, they yeah. have chubby little... Yeah, fat little babies with wings. <laughs> but another important thing, that it, when, when, when actual angels appear in the Bible, it, fear not, and also don't worship me. That's right. It. Yeah, that's, that's really impo that's important. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but, and, and this is really interesting, that there's, there's a connection between fear and worship. You know, right. we're told to, to fear the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, today we have a, 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 a kind of Christianity in many of these, you know, sort of, you know, uh, evangelical malls, you know, sort of entertainment centers, uh, which are essentially are, I think of, you know, as uh, just kind of TED Talks on Sunday, you know, <laughs> where you've, you've got the multimedia show and everything, and, and essentially the guy that's being uh, proffered is a God who's of there there, mm -hmm. not a God to fear, not a God yeah. who's awesome and holy. Uh, so when we encounter some, something that's truly awesome, whether we're talking about a, you know, a, 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 a reality like Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. There's a, there's a, a sense in which we're overwhelmed and we uh, recognize greatness and our own smallness. The, the, the sublime as yes. opposed to the merely beautiful. That's it, right. Yeah. Now, no, you know, if, just to throw something in here, there's right. a really terrible movie that I do not recommend. <laughs> But um, you're going to describe it anyway. But, uh, I, I, we were there. I, I, will, I, will not, I will not give you the name of the movie. Okay, okay. But there's one thing in it that I thought was really rather scathing and painful. 
Okay. It was George Carlin was playing a priest. Oh, that is a and, painful and thought. What he said was, you know, that that they decided they really needed to do a makeover of the church to make it more welcoming to people. Right, right. And so, in place of the crucifix, they had a new image of Jesus that they called Buddy Jesus. Oh yeah, and yeah. it's a statue where he's got this big grin on his face and he's pointing to you with one hand and giving a thumbs up with the other. I've seen that image. Yeah, I didn't realize the origin of that, that image. Yeah, I've seen it's that from, too. But it is uncomfortably close yeah, to what is. a lot of churches have done. That's exactly, yeah, I think that's right. Now, the writings of C.S. Lewis and the writings of Charles Williams uh, present us with, I think, a more biblical vision, understanding of the angelic. And uh, what prompted this actually was was a, a book that you assign, Ray, in your courses. And, and the reason we know each other is because I have a, a parishioner who has been a student of yours. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the reason I know Ray is two of his daughters were in my classes. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's a small, small <laughs> that's exactly world. Right. Small, particularly here in New England where there's so few of us. You go to some place like Nashville and it's like, you know, everybody on every street corner is going to church. You know, in our world... You know, when we had come across intellectuals that are believers, we're like, oh. No, my, my advice with, with the two that went to uh, West Con uh, Central were, oh, you've got to make sure you take Glenn Sunshine. Right, yes. right, right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I know that you assigned the place of the lion in your class, uh, the class that my personal attends or was, was, a, was a student in. And uh, I'm reading it right now because uh, uh, Jim... Uh, gave it to me and said, I want to talk to you about yeah. this. So, I, of course, I'm familiar with Charles Williams, but I had not read that book, and I'm enjoying it very much. And, uh, of course, in that book, you have a, uh, a, a, a way of approaching the angelic that actually get sort of is uh, uh, synthesized with or uh, harmonized with themes that we've talked about before when we talk about Plato. So, there were things going on in the Middle Ages in which there was an attempt to take the knowledge of the you know, of the ancients, Platonic uh, materials, of, you know, later you know Aristotle and so forth, and find ways to coalesce and see the the commonalities between the biblical revelation and this other material, with the understanding that all truth is God's truth, wherever you find it. That means that you don't take everything that the ancients said or outside of the biblical tradition. You, you're obviously winnowing and sorting. But what they did in the Middle Ages, if I understand correctly, and I've, and, uh, I've done some reading in this, this world, is that, is that what you have is a, is, a, is a way of thinking that interprets some of the things that the ancients, I'm thinking, you know, particularly of uh, philosophers like Plato, described uh, in extra-biblical terms within biblical, a biblical framework. So you would talk about, say, the forms within Platonic thought within, uh, through, you know, with the language of, of angelic beings and intelligences. And this is what Williams is doing in his book, Place of the Line. And it, basically, the idea is that, is that these that these, you know, people like Plato and his followers were onto something, but they, but we're completing it. We're, we're helping them to sort of 
we're, we're bringing the biblical material to help sort of fill it out, help our understanding. Well, I mean, Char Charles Williams, I think, Charles, you're, you're, you're speaking right now of Charles Williams' book, The Place of the Lion. Mm -hmm. And I think he wrote nine, I think it's seven or nine novels, and I've read them all. Um, all of them are excellent, except for one. Uh, I forget the name of the one that's terrible. <laughs> but it was the first one that he wrote, and the last one was, that was published. It was, it's terrible. Okay. But, yeah. You know, it's just, a, it's just not well written. But uh, in, all of, in all of his novels, he doesn't take the reader to like another land, like a Paralander, like, an, like, right. like Lewis does, or a Narnia, or something like right. this. What he does is he, every, everyone is set in everyday, every, the everyday world in right. which the supernatural, or uh, um, the angelic, whatever, breaks into time and space. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and his works can be, when you read them, you, you absolutely you get the impression that there is real value and depth here. Yes. Because, well, as a Christian, you know he's a Christian, and it's it, they're engaging novels, and you think, you know, there's, there's, I want to go back and read this again and figure out what is going on, because some of them are complex. Yeah, right. Uh, but I've, I've heard, for example, I've heard a testimony, or a little talk from J.I. Packer, okay. who, of course, he's a, you know, he's a um, uh, Puritan scholar. Sure. Pretty, you know, staid yeah, character. Yeah, right. I've heard him break down during a talk when he was talking about the effect of a particular novel that had on him. One of the Charles Williams. Williams. Wow. Absolutely. That, that's break down. That's right. Now, that's not, now, if we were to give a sort of like the personification of biblical minimalism <laughs> in the Reformed <laughs> tradition, we'd use J.R. Packer. <laughs> yes, exactly. And here he is, he's reading yes, Williams. Yes. That's right. And, and so, in this particular novel, and he, he takes different approaches in the various novels of this way. I mean, certain themes that come up repeatedly in, uh, in, in him. I, you know, overall, if you read a, a Williams novel, if you're a materialist, your worldview is shaken. Yes. Because, right. they, again, this is, this is the supernatural making itself known in everyday, say, England. Right. In this case, in the place of the lion, uh, it's set in a, t in a town in England, and... It starts out with, uh, you know, a slightly unusual event where there's a lion that is uh, like a circus lion that's gotten loose. Yep. And so there's two young, two young men that are walking along together, friends, and, and they hear about this lion that's gotten loose. And, and what should they do? Should they try to help out with the search party uh, or not? One of them wants to run. He's afraid. Yeah, Quentin. Right. Yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the other one, Anthony, says he's got an inclination to, to help. Mm -hmm. You see, this is part of one of the themes of, of, of Williams, that you know, small choices can kind of put us on a trajectory to, to hell or to heaven. So there's a okay. kind of correspondence to this larger sort of supernatural reality and the inner states oh, of, the, of the soul. Yes. Well, you know, someone, someone said about Williams that he was the person that was most comfortable with what most people would describe as the supernatural, and that that for him there was no difference between the supernatural right, and the natural. Right. He's, it's somebody, I, I think the same person said that he was the person that you would most want to spend the night in a haunted house with. <laughs> <laughs> because he would just be able to, you know. He'd, you know, know, what, to, he'd know what to do. He'd know what to do, yeah. Yes. I mean, and, 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 yeah, and so that, that, that's the kind of thing and that's he, coming now out Now, he here. was a big advocate you know, I'll get back to that in a second, but he's a big advocate for what they call romantic theology. Right. And we've been actually talking about that last time, 
where you, you know, events or what you see in this world, you can kind of look along them into, into the heavenly, uh, where basically, you know, things that, loves that you have here are a reflection or a refraction of, the, of divine love. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, for, him, for me, the perfect example for that for Williams is Dante with, with Beatrice. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. Dante the poet, you know, uh, uh, saw this young woman one time, I believe it was one time, maybe twice, one time saw him, saw her, fell in love with her, but not so much with her, but all, but it was like, you know, the love of God kind of bounced, radiated from her face, yeah. and, and he thought about God right, immediately. Right. He, was, he was immediately brought up to, to think about divine love. Mm-hmm. And this is what, you know, this is what Williams is really known for. Mm-hmm. That kind, that romantic theology, yes, that way, right. the way of, I guess, the way of affirmation, as opposed to negation. Exactly right, right. De- denying oneself to get to know better. This kind of thing. So, um, so in the, in this particular novel, that lion turns out that lion uh, was being a. Attra- well, put put it this way, that particular lion that had escaped is swallowed up essentially swallowed up into a gig- gigantic form or idea of lionship. Right, okay? right, right. And that's because what's happening in this novel is the, plat- the platonic ideas or forms or archetypes of things are breaking into time and space right here right. in this particular town in, in England. And, and one way to, dis, to talk about this would be angelic powers. Another way to talk about it would be platonic forms. That's right. That, We're talking about the that, same yes, thing. Yes, they are. They, they really kind of morph their, their different ways to, right. to, to think about, about this, absolutely. Right, right. And, and as people, well, first of all, these angelic powers that are, are, are I'm going to call them that now, angelic powers that are manifesting themselves, the archetypes. Right, right. They are, they are really the forms through which God has created the universe. Yes. That's what they're, they're, they are appearing. And they are, in a sense, they're a kind of a threat because the, the universe is now, they're kind of regathering it back in, okay, at this point. And this happens, that happened with that particular instance of a lion that became kind of, uh, you know, assumed into the form of the lion. Yeah. And yeah. A butterfly, a, a, a beautiful butterfly, the, the, the archetypal butterfly makes an appearance. And what happens, that, that's the form of beauty, or the angel of beauty. Right. And what's happening is all sorts of butterflies are coming from all over right. the county, all over the, the, you know, and they are being, they're, they're, they're attracted to this. So, right. so things are, there's a kind of an apocalypse that is pending here. Unwinding the world. Yes, exactly, and uh, and what's and what we're going to find that 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 Anthony, that young man who wanted to go help, right, find that original line, he's going to become like a hero because those elements that are angelic archetypes, they also represent things like uh, strength or speed and uh, and and wisdom and so forth. Right, and he he's going to. I, essentially, I think what Williams is saying, in part, is that we are we are intended by God to embody a kind of balance of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and like, like, uh, and and this is this is something that uh, that Anthony ultimately does, and he essentially saves the world. Right. Right. Yeah. 
it's it's interesting that you know when you go back to medieval and especially Renaissance uh, versions of Christian Platonism, one of the things that they talk about is humanity as a microcosm. Right. Um, right. That we incorporate in ourselves everything that exists. So we are we live in time, but we're made for eternal life. We are spiritual beings, but we're also physical beings. Um, all of uh, we're rational, but we're also sensual. Um, all of these these different aspects of creation come together in humanity, and it's these things that give humanity its unique dignity. Mm -hmm. And this idea of the dignity of man is huge right. in Renaissance right. thought. And it sounds like I've never read the novel, but it sounds like what Williams is doing is getting at that point right. but from a bit of a different direction right, right. yeah I think Williams is a as a, a significant influence on C.S. Lewis particularly in the uh, space trilogy mm -hmm. especially that idea of strength yeah that yes. and I'm seeing it too in Paralandra and you know when you when you look at you know Lewis's work it's it's sort of a I think that the conventional wisdom of the evangelicals who love Lewis to think that it was all just him, you know, he like, you know, he just sort of cooked it all up in his mind, and he just sort of came up with all this stuff, and in a very actually uh, sort of almost uh, John Bunyan-esque way, you know, like, this means this, this means this, and sort of, you know, uh, that kind of uh, allegorical Allegory, yeah. approach. But but when you get into the sort of the the dynamic that was. Was, was there or present among the Inklings. And you, you grow more and more familiar with people like Williams or Barfield and Tolkien. You, you, you could see how Lewis is sort of playing off of these guys yes. or incorporating some of their ideas. And certainly with, right. with, uh, with, with Charles Williams, uh, you know, Paralandra, I think, and uh, that he is strength, there, Lewis is, you know, uh, drawing on Williams a lot. Right, there's a... You know, there's an interesting interplay between Tolkien and Lewis and Williams where, it, it, from my reading, essentially, um, you know, Lewis and Tolkien were, were the earlier friend, the early right. friendship. And, of course, Tolkien was, you know, um, critical in, in getting Lewis to become a Christian. Right. And I think, and I'm trying to figure out why, but when Williams came along, there was a, Tolkien didn't really like Williams. Right, right. And try to, try to get down to the bottom of why that is uh, a little bit. And I mean, I think in part, I think Tolkien wanted Lewis, you know, it was the older friendship and, and you know, uh, for him, Williams is like the third wheel. Right. And right. I think he also wanted, Tolkien wanted Lewis maybe become ultimately a Catholic, where, yes. whereas, um, uh, Williams was a Protestant, right? And uh, but uh, you know, Williams was odd in some ways. Oh yeah, he, he really was. was. Yeah, he really he, he was. <laughs> and I, I think that out of the Silent Planet, it seems to me that you see more Tolkien. You know, sort of there because the, mm -hmm. the Ransom character is, I think, you know, he's a philologist. You know, like Tolkien, and there are certain things about, I I think, the Ransom character that I think have their. Their origins, or so their inspiration in Tolkien. But I think by, by the time Paralander comes along, you see Williams, and then you see. That's my suspicion. I can't <laughs> prove it. That's what I suspect. Now, now, kind of getting getting back to our lives, 
mm -hmm. uh, in all of this? You know, how does this come into play, or how does this work with us? We've talked a lot in our podcast about uh, about value. You know, where does value come from? Is it something that we give to the world, or is it something that resides in the world, or is it something that is given to the world from an outside source? You know, how, how does it all work? I think you know Williams and Lewis and Tolkien and all of the Inklings are also preoccupied with this this question, but but with the medieval way of thinking, there's a kind of extra sort of dimension, and that's the dimension of the personality, mm -hmm. the intelligences. Uh, when we when we talk about say someone like uh, Plato, when we think about form, we're, we're we're talking about sort of I don't know, it's sort of the structure of reality, but not a per sort of personal reality. When you get into the medievals, when you get into, you know, Abelard and so forth, you're, you're talking about people who, who think about reality in terms of the personal. And that's because there's a personal God. And that's a huge difference between, say, Augustine and Plato and Christianity is this, you know, you could say that, you can say, or you, it's, it's true that you can say that you know, uh, Aristotle and Plato talked about God, but they weren't talking about the Christian no. God. There's no relationship with that God. Um, you depend upon that God, but there's not the kind of dynamic that you have in a biblical framework. But when you get to the medievals, everything's personal, and including the forms. And I think that's what's kind of kind of coming out a little bit when you think about the angelic. There's an in, there there are intelligences. Now, what is that? What difference does that make? Getting back to my earlier you know, set of categories, I've had, a, I've had experiences in my life. And we live in New England, kind of a post-Christian culture. Um, and I think that because we're in New England, we're more kind of sensitive to this than maybe we would be if we were in the South. There's kind of a different ethos in the South, we all know that. But here in New England, um, this is the paradox. We still have a sort of palpable understanding of evil, but we don't have any way to access grace. Let me give you a couple of examples. There have been some experiences that I've had in my life in secular environments where I, where I would say, I'm, in, I'm dealing with evil here. Not in a strictly conceptual sense, but in a personal sense. Yes. So I remember years ago I was at a at a at a, at a, at a uh, roller skating rink in, in Mattapan in Boston, and I was present for a gang fight. I was at the Great Shabu gang fight that made it into the Boston Globe and the front page of the Boston Globe. And uh, there were two rival gangs in the rink that night, um, and this was like 1992, I think it was 91, 92, and uh, and. There was a gang fight that broke out that resulted in a number of, of uh, people getting stabbed, and there were uh, you know there was some police presence. There were riot police that came in. It was just it was it was a pretty significant thing. <laughs> Made it as I said to the front page of the Boston Globe. But I didn't do anything heroic. I'm not saying anything about me. I just was there. I uh, I sensed evil. Palpably, yes. uh -huh. at that time, when I was at the University of Idaho, and I was standing before hundreds of people who were shouting at me and and uh, were 
trying to uh, disparage and dismiss any notion of truth that exists outside of the of the will and the desire. I was in, I was interacting with evil, you know, personal evil, not just simply a concept. Uh, it's my conviction. It's something I've come to over the years is that is that what we're up against is not arguments solely. I'm not against arguments. I want to think well. Mm -hmm. I want to argue well. Yes. But I think that there is a presence, an evil presence behind a number of things that we're up against. And if we can't na name it, I'm not talking about in a goofy Pentecostal way, <laughs> but if we can't sort of realize what we're up against, we can't deal with what we're up against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of behind what I'm talking about. So I believe, you know, when I talked about those three categories, categories two and three are kind of where my mind goes as being the case. Well, I, I think that there's an important component here that this, this idea of personalities is really critical because you will find people in the more materialist conception of the world who will say, well, you know, there's no evidence for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where, where, you know, show me something that's, that, that we can measure. Right. You know, and what they're really looking for is something that's repeatable, empirical, and all of that sort of thing. The problem is, if you're dealing with personalities, they're not empirical. Yes. You know, right. you, can, you can go to campus and say, you know, Professor Sunshine really exists. Well, he's not on the campus. Where is he? If I decide not to show up, even if you call me, there's going to be no evidence that I'm there. Right. You know... And in the same way, I mean, you know, this, this is the problem, you know, the, the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, what constitutes evidence? If it's empirical, if it's something that's repeatable and so on, well, that's one thing. But what if you're dealing with personalities who can choose whether or not to show up? Right. Or suppose I am actually there, but the people who are there are blind. Mm -hmm. If I don't tap them on the shoulder or say something, they won't know I'm there. Yes. No matter how much they want, you know, they're, they're calling or whatever, if I choose not to reveal myself. That's the nature of personality. Right. 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 Yeah, I, um, I'm reminded of two, two other negative instances where you kind of sense something greater. Uh, but I think we could say that also the same thing would be true for, for the presence of good, something supernaturally right. beyond. Sure. I've experienced okay. that as well. But of course. One, one negative one would be, I remember, of course, we all do, the, the terrible day in, um, uh, in Newtown. Yes, a few years right. ago, and I remember Governor Malloy saying uh, there, at, you know, at on site, he said he said evil visited us today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think he backed off of that statement actually later, but that was a that was a true statement about That's something right. beyond just just the natural calculations of human beings were involved here. Right, right. And and also just studying as many people do, uh, you know the. The, the rise of the Third Reich and so sure, forth. Right. You see all these events, and of course you had a, you know, a, a, uh, a, a devious, uh, brilliant politician and evil, but there, when you add it all up, there's more going on here than you can simply say uh, the, the material causes. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's, there's, it's kind of showing a hand of, of cer certain supernatural powers, and certainly the Bible does talk about 
Mm -hmm. the, the reality of, of angelic beings, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all the way from the, again, uh, you know, the, the second, you know, first and second cha chapters of Genesis, yes. where um, you know, uh, you know, where God says, "Let us create mm -hmm. man in our image." Mm -hmm. And my my sense there, I mean, there's different ways to explain that plural there, but my sense is that that's a kind of a picture of God speaking among the divine council, among His angelic right. beings, right. there, and that. That divine counsel is the existence of it. A God in the midst of angelic, created angelic being, beings is something that is reaffirmed in, in numerous places, like maybe most strikingly Isaiah chapter 6. Yes, right. right. Where, where the prophet is walking through the temple and all of a sudden the temple walls shimmer away mm. and he sees into heaven itself, the great right. throne room of, right. of God. Right, right. And so the existence of angelic beings uh, some of which are bent yes. is is is, is affirmed one. in the right. biblical worldview. Yeah, the bent one, obviously, getting back to the space trilogy, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, what do we, yep. what does that mean for us? How how do we you know, sort of deal with this? Um, I think you know, as I look at the way churches, as as I'm kind of surveying them at the moment and thinking about them, there are churches which functionally behave as though none of this is happening. Uh, but in every other respect want to be affirmed as affirming the biblical testimony. So they'll talk about, you know, we talked about biblical minimalism. They'll talk about, oh, of course there are angels. The Bible tells us so. But then, if you ever propose the idea, you know, sort of that maybe there are demonic powers at work in this particular situation, you're you're almost like written off as nuts, <laughs> you know. Um, or you'll get a well, maybe, but how can we really be sure? Right. And you get the the hermeneutics of suspicion again, the yeah. skepticism. Right. Right. Doing laundry over here. Doing fine. Good. I think I'm all set. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then, you know, you've got sort of like the group, the churches that find a demon in every doorknob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's, our, our, things are kind of ridiculous. You know, you're just you know, like... <laughs> if I can give you, a, just for, for instance, not long ago I was assigned um, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, yeah. the, the great passage that you mentioned at the beginning here, to, to preach on. And, uh, and I, I preached on it. I, talked to, I taught on it. I talked about the devil and so forth. And afterwards my wife says... I've never heard you speak so much about the devil. Yeah. I said, it's in the text. Right. My goal, my goal is to, is to have a, kind of a biblical balance. Now God is, is by far, by, you know, the, the focus of scripture. Sure. But the reality of uh, the devil and, and demonic powers is also there. Yeah. So when it's time to talk about it, it's time to talk about it. Right. You know, C.S. Lewis at the beginning of the introduction to Screwtape Letters says that Satan is equally happy if we either ignore him and make believe he doesn't exist or if we see a uh, devil on every doorknob. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And I think that that's exactly right. And I think that, that's, that when you look at situations in which I think there is very clear and obvious demonic manifestations, most often, they're in cultures that accept the idea of the reality of the devil. Right, right. In cultures that don't, he's a lot more subtle. In cultures where they accept it, they're much more overt and much more 
obviously scary and dangerous, which is exactly their whole purpose. Which, which gets us back to this whole idea of personality. Exactly. Know there, there is strategy mm. here. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm, if, I'm a, if, I'm a, if I'm an intelligence and I'm looking at different sort of, sort of fields of that, that, that I want to, to exercise influence in, I think, okay, in this area, I, I take this approach. In this area, I take that approach. Mm-hmm. But the problem with the, the modern conceit is that if it's not uniform, it doesn't exist. Right. You know, so it has to manifest itself the same in every situation, which precludes the possibility of the person mm-hmm. and the strategy. And the strategy, right, right. So I, I'm a I'm a believer in uh, demonic powers, principalities and powers, and I think especially. No, no, if I, I can interrupt, sure. I think a lot of us kind of accept that notion of demonic powers. Right. The question is whether we also accept the notion of angelic powers, unfallen uh, angels. Right, right. That's actually the more, I think, sort of my, my, my intuitive sense is that's the one that's more difficult for most Christians hmm. to really grab hold of. Because we can see the demonic, we can, we can talk about exorcisms, we can do all of that kind of thing. But where do you see angels? That's a good subject for another podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I invite you to bring that one up again, because I think you're right. I'll I, put I, it on the queue. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. In the meantime, you know, we're reformed. And when it comes to dealing with this reality, we're, we're very reluctant to go there, it seems to me. We would rather explain everything away in terms of the human uh, condition fallen. So all evil is, is sort of identified as, well, of course, this is the case because human beings are fallen. We, we like to go there. We, we're uncomfortable go, playing the, the Pentecostal card, as we think, of naming a demon or naming the demonic and saying the demonic is at work here. Because we don't know what to do with that. Because... And know, how can you really know? Yeah, right, right. But I, I, I think here in New England, uh, I'm more and more uh, sort of deeply uh, committed or, or of the conviction that what we're up against can't be beaten with an argument. You know, we've made some good arguments. And we're up against people who are very smart. You know, we, we're involved in, you know, we're in the, the world, you know, of, you know, we're in academe, you know, we've spent time there. We know what we're up against. We're up against some very smart people. We're up against the Westons of the world. Remember Weston from, yeah. you know, the Space Trilogy. That's what we're up against. They're bright. They're not dumb. Um, and we find ourselves like Ransom in the Space Trilogy, unable to, to win the day with argument alone. Now, of course, in the Space Trilogy, in Paralander, he's, he has to resort to physical force. I'm not suggesting that, although I'm not precluding it either. You know? But, what, but what, I, what I think is, is that there's a dimension of reality that isn't subject to argumentation that we have to deal with. And how do we do that? We're talking about, we're talking about their prayer? Yeah. We're right. talking about, you know, using the name of Jesus, right. calling upon His power. Right, right. 
You know, it's interesting you start with prayer because in at pretty much every discussion of the armor of God I've seen, they ignore the end of it, which mm. is prayer. When you look at the last verse, I think he uses words denoting prayer four or five times in the space of, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit, mm -hmm. with all supplication for all the saints. I mean, it's over and over and over again the word prayer appears. He's hitting you with a sledgehammer there. Yeah, you, right, prayer is right. the critical component. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you, because I'm, a, I'm sort of a cerebral person, uh, you know, it's funny. My prayer life has been very fruitful. Nevertheless, it's like, I guess the only thing we can do is pray. <laughs> you know that line. <laughs> it's like last resort. In case of emergencies, break glass. Yeah. <laughs> break just... out prayer. I guess we've tried everything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, why worry when you can pray? Right. Or, excuse me, it's why pray when you can worry. <laughs> Let me tell you a little story, and I'll wrap up with this. When I was in Cape Cod, I was a, and serving as a pastor, I got a call about 2 in the morning from the hospital. One of my parishioners had been hit by a snowplow and cut open and was dying in the uh, emergency room. So it was during a blizzard. So I, you know, what well, you do? You get in your car and you drive through the blizzard. So I got to the Cape Cod Hospital. When I introduced myself to the people at the emergency room, they, they, their eyes opened wide and they said, come with me, now come with us. They, they ushered me into the room where my, one of my parishioners was laid out on a, on a gurney, and there were, I'm not exaggerating, seven or eight people working on it. And there was blood all over the floor. Just, it was horrendous. And they all, when I walked in, stepped back. They knew he was dying. So I stepped up to him, and I'm not gonna mention his name or anything like that. And I just started talking to him, and he was moaning and groaning and knowing he was going to die. And the moment that I spoke to him about Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit was palpable, so palpable that mm. these people who were just witnessing, mm -hmm. their eyes all went wide. They mm -hmm. knew that there was mm -hmm. a spiritual thing that was happening, yes. a spiritual power was, was, was at work. And I, and I prayed with him. I described, you know, his situation. I knew that he had been living as a transvestite and going out to Provincetown and trick, tr you know, doing tricks out there in Provincetown as a homosexual or as a transvestite. This guy was not, you know, like a, uh, a sterling <laughs> person at all. He was a guy that was deeply involved in the, in the sins of this world. And, but God, in that moment, he stabilized. He was healed. I don't take any credit for what happened. I, I did. <laughs> I was just thrown into the mix, you know, and I just did what was was supposed to be done. And in God's sovereignty, something was done. I wish it, I could say I know how it all turns out. I don't. I don't know where this guy is today. I don't know what the purposes for all any of this was. But in in my life, I've experienced evil palpable evil, and I've experienced palpable, sovereign, divine power. Yes. And there's nobody in that room that day who would deny that God was in that room with us. They were all just wide-eyed and amazed at what was going on. And I don't, 
I don't claim to have the gift of healing. I'm not Benny <laughs> <not many> Hinn. <laughs> but that was one of those experiences in your life you just walk away from and you just say, wow, what in the world was that? How do I make sense of any of this? It's not the guy didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He was a, he was a reprobate. <laughs> it was just one of the weirdest things, you know. Nevertheless, it was real. You know, anyway, I'll just fin finish with that thought. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add, Ray. Well, Chris, on your, uh, on the, your Facebook post when you're kind of working out some of these ideas, uh, someone mentioned um, Athanasius' work on the Incarnation. Right. And, he, uh, and I went back to that book. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it does have a lot of relevance to this whole question. Uh, Athanasius, of course, I, I think he's writing around 300. Am I right, uh, Glenn? Around 300. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he's, he's right around Nicaea. Uh, and and of course, the the pagan world. Still, the church is kind of breaking out of the pagan world. The pagan world is essentially being overcome. And Athanasius talks about how how one of the evidences for the uh, the fact that Jesus is resurrected and alive is that he uh, that at his name. Uh, the, 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 the demonic powers flee. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that they saw. And he talked in general, too, about how the gospel, about how the gospel ha is bringing people out from under all that oppression mm -hmm. in general as well. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a concern as our, you know, we, we, we've enjoyed, to a large extent, kind of life out from under, you know, oppression. Spiritual oppression, but now as we're kind of leaving that the Christian yes. um, uh, culture in, in, in the rearview mirror, I think we may be facing it more, you know, uh, boldly. Yeah, I, I would say we've never been out from under it. It's just taken a different form. It's been more subtle, more, more, more right. hidden. Um, Fair I'm, I'm going to for for my final comment. Um, I've had a number of. Um, Opportunities to interact with Oz Guinness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, some of them have been kind of amusing, but there was one of them where I was talking to him about the newest book that I was at that point writing, um, Kingdom Unleashed, which uh, has come out with Jerry Trousdale. And the idea in the book is that, you know, the, Christianity is growing faster now than it ever has in history, but all, almost all the growth is in the global south. So the question is why they're not here. And I'm explaining this to Oz, I'm saying, you know, this is what we're working on. And he looked at me as if, you know, Oz is way too polite to say this, but it, the, the look said, isn't it obvious, you idiot? <laughs> and uh, what he, but the words that came out of his mouth were, well, they have a supernatural worldview. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the difference. Right. In the global south, they have a supernatural worldview. Mm -hmm. That's why the gospel is growing there. Mm -hmm. right. And right. we are completely missing it. And this whole thing of principalities, powers, uh, angels, we didn't get into the idea that you see in Daniel of angelic authorities over right. regions of the world right. or over kingdoms, those kinds of things. All of that is the reality that we have systematically suppressed, ignored, or may believe wasn't real. And we, it, I think we would be, it would be well for us to recover it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, and, it, and I think that, you know, there are many things that we can, can uh, 
look at with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters and admire, but we also are kind of appalled by some of the things we see as well. And what I'd love to see is the Reformed sort of address this stuff in a way that I, I would hope would be uh, able to re sort of a, uh, appreciate or sort of affirm the best, which of course is biblical, but also sort of dismiss or put aside the things that are, we, we know are exploitive and, and... Yeah, a provocative book that goes in that direction is Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm. Hmm. I don't endorse it wholeheartedly, but I think he's right about a lot more than he's wrong about. Okay, so, as well, a that's a good note. note. Well, why don't we finish with that? Uh, anyway, it's been great to be with you. We've, we've gone a little long, uh, but uh, we appreciate your willingness to, to hang with us to this point. And uh, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye now.